Welcome to Indie Film Weekly, a No Film School podcast. I'm Liz Nord. I'm Emily Buter. And I'm John Fusco. It's August 3rd, 2017, and on this week's show, is the DSLR officially dead? Can Netflix save itself from itself? And will Steven Soderbergh save us all? So many questions, so much drama, and as always, news you can use about new gear, upcoming deadlines, indie film releases, weekly words of wisdom, and Ask No Film School. Welcome to Indie Film Weekly from downtown Brooklyn, New York, home of No Film School. And as always, we're here to bring you everything you might have missed while you were busy making films. So, if there's any topic more hotly debated on NoFilmSchool.com than whether film is dead, it's whether or not DSLRs are still a viable filmmaking tool. And this past week, a surprising voice weighed in with an even more surprising suggestion for DSLRs replacement. Vic Gundatra is a former senior VP of engineering at Google, where one of the things he worked on most closely was the photo technology. He came out on Facebook Monday saying that it's the end of the DSLR era, and do you know why? Not because of mirrorless, but because of the iPhone. And this means a lot coming from a guy who helped develop Google's Android phone. Now, admittedly, I like this story because it's a little catty and gossipy, but also because this guy actually knows what he's talking about. And when commenters pushed back, he dug his heels in even further, saying, quote, If you truly care about great photography, you own an iPhone. If you don't mind being a few years behind, buy an Android. Ouch. Burn. He chalks this up to Android being a mostly open-source operating system that has to be neutral to all parties. So when a phone manufacturer like Samsung innovates with the underlying hardware, like a better camera, they have to convince Google to allow that innovation to be surfaced to other applications via the appropriate API, which Gundatra claims can take years. Apple, on the other hand, can outfit its phones with a top-notch camera and then update its own software immediately and go ahead and ship it. The long and short of it, Gundatra wrote, I ran all of Google's mobile efforts from 2007 to 2010, so I understand this topic reasonably well. I would never buy an Android phone again if I cared about photography. That is pretty damn clear. Yeah, ouch, again, burn again. I'm burning up. Now, of course, Gundatra is referring to still photography in his comments, but more and more credible filmmakers are using iPhones to create real, viable work. Just in the past month alone, I posted some iPhone shorts directed by Michelle Gondry, and Emily wrote about Steven Soderbergh's forthcoming iPhone feature. For me, the takeaway is that we have fewer and fewer excuses not to go out there and make a movie. Speaking of Soderbergh, I have kind of an interesting story for you today about how he's trying to break the Hollywood studio model. Of course, this comes as no surprise to anyone who knows anything about Soderbergh, because he is a bit of a rebel without a cause when it comes to filmmaking. In 2013, the director addressed the San Francisco International Film Festival with the following statement, quote, I'm going to attempt to show how a certain kind of rodent might be smarter than a studio when it comes to picking projects, end quote. Speaking of people who say what's on their mind. I was going to say, ouch, burn is the theme of the show today. <laughs> yeah. A writer named Zach Barron wrote a piece for GQ in which he interviewed Soderbergh about this very topic. But first, here's a little background on Soderbergh. At 26, the Wonderkin became the second youngest Palme d'Or winner at Cannes for the seminal indie film Sex, Lies, and Videotape, which I personally love. But he also knows a thing or two about Hollywood. He directed 2001's Ocean's Eleven, and that very same year was nominated twice for an Oscar for Traffic and Aaron Brockovich. And you may remember that he won for Traffic. 
But recently, Soderbergh has been steering clear of films entirely. He's found much more freedom on television with the Nick and the Girlfriend experience. And in the GQ article, Soderbergh talks about how he will release Logan Lucky, his first film in four years. The heist film stars Channing Tatum and Adam Driver as robbers, but what's much more interesting than the film itself is the way in which Soderbergh chose to finance and distribute it. Logan Lucky is an experiment, Soderbergh told Barron. The problem that I think needs to be addressed is this. What has happened to movies for grown-ups made by people who are still interested in the idea of cinema? Soderbergh thinks the answer lies in cutting out the middleman. With Logan Lucky, he's completely extricated himself from the studio system, giving him complete creative control and, more importantly, he says, direct access to revenue. To finance the production of Logan Lucky, Soderbergh raised $29 million under the banner of his company Fingerprint Releasing by pre-selling the film's international rights based on the A-list cast, all of whom, by the way, agreed to work for scale with profit participation. Then Soderbergh sold everything except for theatrical rights, such as HBO, Netflix, VOD, television rights, and airplane syndication, to pay for advertising and prints of the movie. And it all works like a charm. Studio films are infamous for hemorrhaging money when it comes to the advertising and marketing phase of a film's life cycle, so Soderbergh was really excited to take that into his own hands this time around. He struck an unorthodox deal with Bleecker Street, in which he agreed to pay them only $1 million up front, but then offered them revenue shares in box office and DVD sales. So now it's time for the movie to be released in theaters. But rather than being funneled through a shady profit distribution system, the revenue will go directly back to Soderbergh. Anyone who worked on the film will be able to access a password-protected link that displays just how much money the film has made to date and what percentage of that is theirs to keep. So the money passes through exactly no one's hands. It's a model of complete transparency. As Soderbergh puts it, the question is, can we put a movie out in 3,000 theaters and spend half of what a studio would spend on it and succeed? The article ends on a somewhat ominous note. When Barron asked Soderbergh whether an aspiring filmmaker starting out now could have the same kind of career he had, the director responded, quote, you aren't allowed to make the kind of mistakes that I made anymore. You're not allowed to go and make five movies in a row that nobody saw and survive. You're done. Well, that's actually really interesting because I remember last week in your weekly Words of Wisdom, you said basically the exact opposite coming from Mark Duplass, who said that you should go out and make 10 terrible movies before you, you know, get your own... Uh, get your own career really going so goes to show yeah one size does not fit all there's a lot of ways to do it and I love that Soderbergh is being really transparent with his with his cast and crew here I feel like that's a model we could all follow unfortunately we can't really all follow the model of pre-selling our international (laughs) and you know VOD rights because who who wants them if we're not Steven Soderbergh so but if you have one name um, name cast member then you can at least, they're pretty bankable overseas, so you can at least just snag one and then hope that you can finance that way. How do you snag one? <laughs> That's a good question. You're an actor. Tell us how. I have no, I have no <laughs> idea. I don't know any big-name actors, except for I know Daniel Craig, so I could probably ask him to be in my movie too. You do? Mm-hmm. Cool. Mm-hmm. Wow. Cool. Is he your godfather? Cousin. Shush. No, he's not. Mm-hmm. How have we waited all these months? <laughs> he's, he's, not lying. This? he's lying. He's lying. You, the look on your face right now. <laughs> he's lying. Emily's incredulous. <laughs> no, I'm. I'm actually British. I'm a British person. Okay. Okay. 
I don't know what's true anymore. I'm going to steer the ship in a different direction right now. Guess what I'm about to do? I'm about to do something really exciting, and it is called The Bottom Line. (laughs) (laughs) It's me, your host for today's show, with that weird last name that no one can pronounce. Butter? Yes. (laughs) (laughs) People mostly say butter. (laughs) Okay. (laughs) Or buter. Anyway, guess who's on the docket today? Can anyone guess? Nope, probably not. You didn't give us time. Okay. <laughs> Can anyone guess? Daniel Craig. No. Steven Soderbergh. No. Liz. Um, yes, but not right now. Okay. Oh. <laughs> it's not your turn to shine. <laughs> it's Netflix. <laughs> Dang. That was what? such an exciting payoff. That's much. I have to say. <laughs> it was or it wasn't. <laughs> Okay, because who else would we ever deign to talk about on the bottom line other than Netflix? This time, though, there are some clouds on the horizon. Although Netflix has 104 million subscribers worldwide, which is up from 25% last year and almost quadruple from five years ago, it's in some serious credit card trouble. Like the kind of trouble that would make your Mint account force quit in horror. In its quest to chase the dragon of original content, Netflix has racked up $20.5 billion in long-term debt and obligations. And yes, you heard that number, right? $20.5 billion. If I could whistle, I would totally make that whoo whistle sound. (laughs) Thank you. Oh, man, that wasn't very good. I'm usually better at whistling. Want to try again? Yeah. There we go. That was a clean clean whistle. After after mathematician, British person, and expert whistler, John Fuse. And whistleblower. This isn't the first time we've talked about my whistle on the podcast either. Anyways, back to the bottom line. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. Come on, guys. So you might be wondering how investors feel about this situation. And surprisingly, they're mostly copacetic. Investors are betting that the more money Netflix spends, the more it will make. And right now, they're kind of right on target. Netflix shares surged more than 10% this month, and subscriber growth exceeded targets. And for the year, stock is up nearly 50%. But there is a notable group of investors who claim that Netflix's shares are grossly overvalued. So can anyone say housing crisis? Bubbles indeed burst, and when they do, there's hell to pay, and someone's going to have to go the way of the Lehman Brothers. It's always strange transitioning into an obituary, and this is no different. Um, one of my, this is, this is a really sad one for me, um, personally, just because I've always sort of idolized him, but Sam Shepard, who was a Pulitzer Prize winning playwright, uh, as well as a screenwriter, a director and an actor died on Sunday morning, actually at 73. Mr. Shepard, who had been battling ALS or Lou Gehrig's disease for a long time, died peacefully at home in Kentucky in the company of his children and sisters. He's the type of artist who will be remembered across every discipline of culture. While the plays he wrote, which were 44 in total, are some of the greatest contributions to American theater, the themes that sprouted from his mind have gone on to inspire generations of filmmakers, actors, and writers to delve into the darker side of family life, friendships, and experiences of love. Many consider him to be the greatest American playwright of his generation, but the roots really run much deeper than that. Broadway World, which published the initial reports of Shepard's death, recognized Shepard's plays as chiefly known for their bleak, poetic, often surrealist elements, black humor, and rootless characters living on the outskirts of American society. 
These works set a tone for many American artists as the idea of the nuclear family lost its sheen over the course of the 70s and 80s. In addition to his masterful career as a playwright, including his Pulitzer Prize-winning drama Buried Child, Fool for Love, and True West, Shepard was an acclaimed and uniquely gifted actor. His first role was as the farmer in Terrence Malick's career-defining Days of Heaven, which came out in 1978, opposite Richard Gere and Brooke Adams. He will perhaps best be remembered, however, for his portrayal of Chuck Yeager in The Right Stuff, a performance for which he earned an Academy Award nomination in the category of Best Supporting Actor. A few of Shepard's plays would later be adapted into films of their own, and Shepard would come on to contribute as a screenwriter. These include Paris, Texas, Fool for Love, and Far North, one of two films on which he tried his hand at directing. Patti Smith, his one-time lover, penned a pretty touching tribute to Shepard in The New Yorker Tuesday morning, remembering, We had our routine, awake, prepare for the day, have coffee, a little grub, set to work, writing, then a break outside to sit in the Adirondack chairs and look at the land. We didn't have to talk then, and that is real friendship. Never uncomfortable with silence, which, in its welcome form, is yet an extension of conversation. We knew each other for such a long time. Our ways could not be defined or dismissed with a few words describing a careless youth. We were friends. Good or bad, we were just ourselves. The passing of time did nothing but strengthen that. That's really beautiful. And it's also a bit weird to transition out of obituaries, but we are going to move on. So Charles Hayne is out at a Black Magic Da Vinci Resolve training all week. So we will be bringing you the gear news, but funny enough, our first item is from that very same company. So we often post about software upgrades on the site, and they're usually relatively minor, but not so in this case. The world's largest computer graphics conference, SIGGRAPH, happened this week, and our friends over at Blackmagic took the opportunity to announce a huge update to Fusion. If you're unfamiliar with it, Fusion has long been an industry standard in visual effects and compositing, but version 9 boasts 40 new features, most important among them a VR toolkit. This set of tools for creating visual effects within VR includes a full 360-degree true 3D workspace, the ability to wear a headset and interact with VR scene elements in real time, and a 360-degree camera that reportedly renders out complete VR scenes in a single pass. Version 9 also includes a new and improved planar tracker, camera tracker, and delta keyer. So, if you're excited about VFX, you'll know exactly what I'm talking about. <laughs> the best part is the new features come with a significant price drop on Fusion Studio from $995 to only $299. By the way, like Blackmagic's DaVinci Resolve, there's also a free version of Fusion available online that you can kind of get started with. In some bad tech news, if you're traveling with camera gear, you can now expect your next trip through airport security to be even more time-consuming as the TSA has pumped up their screening protocol for electronic devices. Do they have to take their shoes off too? <laughs> Who? Camera people? <laughs> The cameras. <laughs> Nerd. <laughs> so as I said, the TSA has announced that they have plans to raise airport security with brand new domestic screening procedures targeting electronic carry-on items. These stronger security measures will require travelers to place all electronics larger than a cell phone inside bins for x-ray screening. So this is the exact same protocol the TSA has enforced for electronics like laptops, but these new screenings will include smaller items such as tablets, handheld game consoles, and yes, even cameras. This isn't great news for those of us who travel around with a ton of expensive gear. Aside from the inconvenience of having to unpack everything you 
brought, it's also not exactly comforting to have someone who doesn't know anything about your technology to get their grubby hands all up on it. So, hey, maybe it's time to invest in a TSA pre-check or a Pelican case so you can feel comfortable checking your equipment. But the TSA pre-check seems like a pretty good deal at, at this point like the best 85 bucks i ever spent i yeah. gotta say it's like 85 bucks for three years right a three-year membership or I don't is it remember. just one year anyways i feel like it's five years maybe five years and it's helping the government <laughs> <laughs> hurrah and in more inconvenient gear news and perhaps a sign that you should just switch to mirrorless already if you ordered either one of nikon's 100th anniversary commemorative d5 cameras or the Canon 6D Mark II kit that comes with the EF 2470 f4L lens, you will have to wait a little longer than expected to get your hands on them. Both companies announced this week that their DSLRs were delayed. The Canon was intended to ship on August 4th, but is now delayed until an unspecified date, and the Nikon deliveries pushed back from July 28th to mid-August. If you're desperate to get your hands on a 6D Mark II, which I acknowledge that you're probably not, it's currently available as body only or with the 24 to 105, 35 to 5.6, and f4 lenses. And now for even more numbers followed by letters. <laughs> the lens mount options are growing for Fujifilm MK zooms, and it's time to take notice. When the original Fujifilm MK zooms came out this spring, we loved them, but were frustrated they came in only one mount, E. Clearly, the target for this lens was the exceptionally popular Sony FS7 camera. While that camera has been a huge hit and is a smart target for Fuji to cater towards, we've been hoping from the start for more choices in the mount. Of course, when a manufacturer doesn't deliver something the market is hungry for, aftermarket vendors step in to deliver. In recent weeks, two well-known and trusted lens vendors, Duclos and MTF, have started offering services customizing the MK zooms into other mounts. Duclos offers a conversion to the Sony FZ mount for $500 or $400 if you also purchase your MK zoom there. The FZ mount is used on the F3, F5, and F55 cameras from Sony. The other option for filmmakers who want other mounts is London-based MTF services. MTF will convert the MKs to either FZ mount or MFT mount for £200, which works out to about $265. But for North Americans, you'll have to factor in the cost of shipping. So for our Ask No Film School question today, Elizabeth Kim asked the following on our boards. How much of a role does the author of a nonfiction book have in production and post-production of a documentary? A documentary that is, in fact, based on the author's book. Is it generally standard to have the author part of the production and post-production? Well, hi, fellow Elizabeth. This is a great question, and it's one of the few cases where the answer applies to both docs and fiction projects. So without knowing anything about your specific project and what stage you're at, the most important thing anyone needs from the author of a book that you're basing a film on is their permission. This applies no matter what, even if your production is not profit or not intended for a wide audience. So there's a legal process to get this permission, and it's called optioning the book. Optioning the book isn't buying the film rights, but it's the first step. It's getting the exclusive option from the copyright holder to buy the film rights if you get to that stage. So I'm not a lawyer, this isn't official legal advice, but there are plenty of resources online about this, and of course you can always talk to an attorney. Long story short, you find out who owns the copyright, which is usually the author themselves rather than the publisher, and then explain your project and ask them to option it for the amount of time you think you need to get the film together. Now, how involved the author is in your production once you've agreed on the terms of an option is entirely up to you. 
You're under no obligation to have them as part of the production, but it could be very beneficial for you to do so because of the knowledge they have about your subject. If you're unsure whether you'd like them involved or not, I'd recommend meeting with them a few times before making any promises, if they're open to do it. So like, see if you get along, and if you think they would gel with your team, and most importantly, try to determine whether they would add value to your efforts rather than trying to overtake the creative direction of the project. Remember, they will probably feel a lot of ownership over this subject, and therefore their presence might be sort of overbearing rather than helpful. Either way, it would be a nice gesture to give them some sort of advisory credit, but no matter what you decide, set clear boundaries for their role on the production, as you would with any other crew member, and have that in writing so everyone is on the same page from the get-go. Thanks for the question, Elizabeth, and good luck. And now on to movies opening this week. Coming to VOD, you can check out 68 Kill on August 4th. This was the most widely buzzed about entry into the midnight section at South by Southwest earlier this year, where it won the coveted audience award. And South by Southwest midnight section is probably one of the better midnight sections you're going to see. So this was a standout from that. That means it's a standout from the whole festival season, I'd say. I haven't seen it, but I want to. It was labeled a punk rock romantic comedy for our jagged times. Jagged indeed. The film follows Chip, a simple septic tank worker whose girlfriend supplements their income with a sugar daddy. When she suggests that they relieve her sleazy benefactor of a stack of cash, Chip begins to see a side of her he never knew existed. Now he's got a gun in his hand, a girl in his trunk, and less than 24 hours to figure out his way of this messy situation. That is a hell of a synopsis. Yeah. I didn't, I didn't write it. That was South by Southwest. I did some doctoring to it, but nothing that was too impressive. 68 Kill was written and directed by Trent Haga and stars Matthew Gray Goobler, Annalyn McCord, and Alicia Bowe. Those are a hell of a cast of names. Do you know Matthew Gray Goobler? <laughs> I do not. I don't either. And coming to Netflix on August 4th, Wet Hot American Summer, 10 years later. Wet Hot American Summer is back. While the previous Netflix series went back in time, this one ventures 10 years after the original movie was set. The core cast is already incredible, of course, with Amy Poehler, Paul Rudd, Michael Ian Black, David Hyde Pierce, Christopher Maloney, Elizabeth Banks, Molly Shannon, H. John Benjamin, and Ken Marino, all of which were in the original film. Then you have to add in the new members who joined up for Netflix's prequel season, including Kristen Wiig, Josh Charles, Chris Pine, Lake Bell, and finally, tack on a few new faces like John Early and Adam Scott. What about Matthew Gray Goobler? <laughs> yeah, there's a gaping Goobler-shaped hole right there. <laughs> oh, man. That's a gross phrasing. That's a common phrase, <laughs> a something-shaped hole. A gaping Goobler hole? <laughs> Okay, fine. I'll give you that. <laughs> With all those names at the beck and call of series runners Michael Showalter and David Wayne, there is every reason to expect that the new season will be hilarious, gooberless, or not. Also, this was probably a really fun series to shoot, and our writer, Hawkins Dubois, is interviewing the DP this week, so we'll get a chance to find out. And you will too, if you read the article later this week. Two of my favorite films out of Sundance this year are hitting theaters this Friday, August 4th. The first is Taylor Sheridan's Wind River, a sparse frontier noir thriller that completes Sheridan's loose Western trilogy. Sheridan wrote Sicario and Hell or High Water, but here he tries his hand at directing for the first time, and you better believe it won't be his last. 
Sheridan displays an impeccable combination of grit and dignity in telling the story of a destitute Native American reservation. It's a personal story for Sheridan, as he grew up visiting the very reservation at which he filmed, and with Wind River, he exposes the bleak reality of life there. When a local game tracker, played by a powerful Jeremy Renner, discovers a young Native American woman's body dumped on an icy mountain, he must work with a very green FBI agent, played by Elizabeth Olsen, who's sent to solve the crime. But as Olsen's character soon finds out, there's more to the story than just this murder, and in these lands, the truth comes at a price. Other than the spectacular chilly cinematography and excellent performances, the film is worth seeing just to witness Sheridan's gift for dialogue. He's admitted in previous interviews that he's, quote, allergic to exposition and instead favors absurdly simple plots that bring character and development to the fore. My other favorite Sundance film hitting theaters on August 4th is Columbus. You might recognize the name Koganada from the internet, where he rose to film theory grandeur as a prolific video essayist. Now he's taken his cinematic prowess to an incredibly moving directorial debut. Columbus stars Splits, Haley Lou Richardson, and Harold and Kumar's John Cho in roles like you've never seen them play before. The film is a deeply felt meditation on relationships, maturity, architecture, and just about everything else. Koganada's precise and intentional filmmaking, including some stunning wide shots, interacts beautifully with the messy emotions and philosophy the characters explore. It's an understated film if I ever saw one, and if you're into filmmaking that's both intelligent and emotional, run, don't walk to the theater. You won't regret it. Who's into those things? <laughs> Clearly me. I'm more into unintelligent and unemotional film. You sound like a man. Thank you. <laughs> also hitting theaters August 4th is the much-talked-about Detroit. Catherine Bigelow, who became the first woman ever to win a directing Oscar for Hurt Locker, is turning her eye away from the Middle East after the award-winning Hurt Locker and Zero Dark Thirty and towards the war in Middle America. Detroit focuses on the events of the Detroit Rebellion of 1967, with the city under curfew and as the Michigan National Guard patrolled the streets, three young African-American men were murdered at the Algiers Motel. It's got an incredibly talented cast, including John Boyega, Anthony Mackie, and Jason Mitchell. By the way, if you're interested in music supervision, check out an article my former MTV colleague Jem Aswad wrote in Variety this week about creating the period-specific soundtrack for this film. It's fascinating and actually made me want to see the film as much as kind of all the buzz about the content has. I love imagining you at MTV in the 90s. Was it the 90s? It's 2008. Oh, okay. Never mind. <laughs> Wasn't the 80s? <laughs> okay, everyone. VH1. <laughs> and coming to theaters on August 4th is another film about an American city with a complicated relationship with race and class, but it's a really different type of movie from Detroit. In this case, the city is Baltimore and the movie is Step, a documentary that won the Special Jury Award for Inspirational Filmmaking at Sundance this year, where it was picked up by Fox Searchlight. The movie follows four black high school seniors at a girls' school in inner city Baltimore, which, for those of you who don't know, is where one of the more infamous police brutality cases that resulted in the death of Freddie Gray went down a couple years ago, during the movie's production. These girls are fighting against the odds to graduate and be the first in their families to go to college, and part of what's getting them through is participating in a competitive step dance team. Despite some of the heavy circumstances, it's a really positive and energetic film, and it had audiences going nuts at Sundance. I actually just got off the phone with the film's director, Amanda Lippitz, right before we recorded, and in our interview she talked about her background as a Broadway producer and how it helped make what she called a documentary musical, 
So I'll have that article up later this week. And I just want to mention about the past two films. There's been a lot of kind of news, especially around Detroit, about who gets to tell certain stories in this country. So Detroit was made by a white female filmmaker. Step was made by a white female filmmaker. I have interviewed, I want to say like six or seven uh, white filmmakers this past year who've um, made films about the African-American experience. And it's a really interesting question, you know, I think for us as filmmakers about you know, who gets to tell whose stories? How do you make sure someone's story is authentic if you're not from their community uh, and that you're being true to, you know, the protagonists in the film and not sort of like putting too much of your own cultural lens on things? So if you're interested in this topic, I did a whole podcast about it with the makers of the film For Akeem. It's called How to Make an Authentic Movie About Someone Else's Story, and we will link to it in the podcast post. And now moving on to some grant deadlines. The Tribeca Film Institute If Then Short Documentary Grant has a deadline on August 4th. This one's a bit confusing because while it's being put on by the Tribeca Film Institute, it's actually intended for documentary filmmakers working or living in the South. It's a short documentary pitch competition that will be held in New Orleans during the New Orleans Film Festival on Friday, October 13th, 2017. Six projects will be selected as finalists, and the winner, selected by a professional jury, will be eligible for up to $20,000 in production support from If Then, as well as ongoing mentorship year-round, in person or virtually, and will participate in a year-long distribution initiative managed by Tribeca Film Institute that offers creative control, revenue potential, and career development. And August 9th is the deadline for the NEH Media Production Grants. NEH stands for the National Endowment for the Humanities, which continues to have a budget and will hopefully for the next couple weeks. If it does, you can continue to apply with documentaries that address the humanities. The application process is famously hard. You need an experienced team, a nonprofit organization or fiscal sponsor, two humanities advisors, and a lengthy application. Ken Burns' project descriptions are rumored to have been around 40 pages, but the payoff is worth it. It's one- to three-year grants in the $100,000 to $650,000 range. Film and television projects may be submitted as single programs or a series addressing significant figures, events, or ideas, and drawing their content from humanity scholarship. They must be intended for national distribution, and the program welcomes projects ranging in length from short-form to broadcast-length video. In addition to the production grant, NEH also provides a development grant, which also has a deadline on August 9th. Like the production grants we just mentioned, the development grants are for documentaries that address topics in the humanities, and the application process is just as extensive. The awards range from $40,000 to $75,000. These development grants enable media producers to collaborate with scholars to develop humanities content and to prepare programs for production. Grants should result in a script or a design document and should also yield a detailed plan for outreach and public engagement in collaboration with a partner organization or organizations. Wait, is Daniel Craig really your cousin? <laughs> yeah, you've been thinking, I've been thinking that the entire time too. He's my dad. <laughs> Jeez. Okay. <laughs> that explains so damn much. <laughs> it doesn't explain anything. <laughs> <laughs> okay, on to some festival deadlines. The Crossroads Film Festival, otherwise known as Britney Spears Love Fest, has a deadline of August 5th. No, it's not. No, no, it's not known as that. Yes, it is. Is it? Ask known anyone. The Britney Spears Love Fest Festival? Have you seen Crossroads? No. Um, okay. <laughs> Early bird deadline is August 5th. It takes place in Jackson, Mississippi from April 12th to 15th, 2018. 
Since 2000, the Crossroads Film Society has hosted the annual Britney Spears Love Fest Film Festival, where 75 to 100 of the best and most innovative international, U.S., Southern, and Mississippi independent films are exhibited. There will be cash prizes, Southern celebrities, (laughs) wink, wink, (laughs) (laughs) workshops, (laughs) daily receptions, (laughs) and nightly juking with live music. That's awesome. I want to Love me a good jukebox. I want to juke. Let's juke. I'm getting out of here. <laughs> got a dollar, John? I've got more than a dollar for <laughs> you, baby. He's got a lot of money. Daniel Craig is a <laughs> Yeah, that's true. He doesn't show me any of that money. Why are you still working here? Well, I'm actually, he orphaned me. So he's my Bastard biological son! father, but not my my dad, per se. You know what they say about bastards? We're the shit. <laughs> okay, we'll go with that. They're kings of the north. <laughs> and on August 9th, the late deadline for the Lone Star Film Festival takes place. The film festival itself is held from November 8th to 12th, 2017 in Fort Worth, Texas. It features cash prizes and has been named one of Movie Maker Magazine's top 50 film festivals worth the entry fee for three consecutive years. The Oxford International Film Festival has an early bird deadline on August 8th. This festival takes place May 11th to the 13th, 2018 in Oxford, England. OXIF, as it is acronymically known, is acronymically a word? No, but I like it. I do too. It is now. Is a sister festival to the highly successful Manchester Film Festival, or MF. MF. <laughs> <laughs> It is one of the 100 best-reviewed film festivals on Film Freeway. And believe it or not, we've made it to Weekly Words of Wisdom. Here's Emily Booter. Last week, I spoke with Koganata, the director of Columbus, which I mentioned earlier. Um, when I saw this film, it was very clear to me that Koganata had a vision for it. Everything was very intentional and deliberate. And I asked him why that was. And here's what he had to say. I mean, I think because of the 18 uh, days of shooting... And, you know, I've done enough creative projects to know that uh, there's a real danger of taking on too much and then everything being compromised because you run out of time, you know, and and so you start out really strong, but by the end, there's no way that you can do everything you want. And so it was very, I think right away, I knew that I wanted to have every shot count and I knew that that would mean that I would have to have less coverage, you know, that I, I, sh- I shouldn't put too many things on the list so that we could really get the shots that we wanted. Thanks, Koganada. So in another shout-out to Hawkins Dubois, because I just really like saying his name, he did a post this week called Five Hollywood Meetings You Should Master and How to Do It, based on a Writers Guild Foundation panel he went to out in L.A., I found this to be one of the most useful panels we've written up in a while because it gets into some of the insidery stuff about how you actually navigate the weird world of Hollywood in terms of representation meetings, pitch meetings, staffing meetings, and more. So the word of wisdom I'm sharing is from panelist Kira Snyder, a writer whose credits include The Handmaid's Tale, The 100, and the upcoming Pacific Rim Uprising. In talking about your pitch meeting, she says that you should practice with an audience ahead of time and have everything written down, but make the pitch itself conversational and keep it concise and engaging. In terms of what to actually say, she advises, quote, The people you're pitching to will already know about the project a little bit, so start with why you're interested in the project and what makes you qualified to tell the story. And then she adds, 
Talk about the world of the show. Tell them why the main character is compelling in a TV show. Don't pitch the pilot beat for beat. Don't get into the minutiae, but walk through the pilot, the season, and the series in broad strokes, showing how relationships develop. And then finish with questions. Finally, one critical piece of advice that I think is useful for any meeting, make sure to keep stuff in your back pocket that you can use during the questions. This week, we published a guest post from one of our great contributors, Eric Baker, in which he interviews the director of Annabelle Creation. David F. Sandberg made no-budget horror shorts in his apartment until Hollywood tabbed him to direct the horror hit, Lights Out. He gave a few tips for filmmakers trying to enter the industry in a similar fashion through shorts, and one of his major pieces of advice had to do with cultivating a fan base. For every short film Sandberg made, he also created a behind-the-scenes video illustrating his directorial choices and how he was able to shoot on a micro-budget. Additionally, the videos presented the opportunity for Sandberg to appear in front of the camera and establish a personal connection with the viewer. He found that fellow filmmakers appreciated the videos and kept coming back for more. This is a great and easy way to build up an audience. Good words of wisdom this week, guys. And even more wisdom can be found next Monday when our next interview podcast comes out. I'm really excited for this one because even though it was recorded way back in September, I still remember it as one of the most entertaining interviews I did all year. It's with the entire main cast and the writer and director of In the Radiant City, which I talked about a couple weeks ago on the show when it came out on VOD. As a reminder, it's the dramatic debut feature by Jeff Nichols' protege Rachel Lambert, and the reason the conversation is so great is because it was a really top-notch cast, including names you may not know but faces you definitely recognize, like Marin Ireland, Madison Beattie, and Celia Weston, and I get them all to dish about the worst things directors can do on set. I think you'll learn a lot from it. Meanwhile, please, please subscribe to this podcast, the No Film School podcast, on iTunes. It really makes a difference, as do those reviews and five-star ratings. Or find us on any podcast app you use. We will link to all the great resources we discussed today in this week's podcast post. And, of course, you can read lots more about the craft of filmmaking at nofilmschool.com. And until then, please stay in touch. I'm at Liz Film on Twitter. At Yale Booter. At Jim underscore John underscore Jim. Hey, Jim. Hey, John. Hey, Jim. A John. A Jim. Slash at Daniel Craig's son. Biological son. Bastard son. Bastard son. (laughs) And we're all at No Film School. See you next week. My mom is Cheryl Crow. <laughs>